Good afternoon to everyone here. It's always so encouraging to get back together, to see everyone, to have a couple of visitors with us that, like Kyle said, are just like family. Um, it's always good to have everyone out as much as they can. Uh, this afternoon, I'm going to bring a subject up that I had brought up to Kyle and I mentioned to Logan. I never heard anyone really talk about uh, the issue of suicide or euthanasia before when I was growing up, and it was kind of one of those things when I would ask, uh, I would usually get kind of shut out, like, oh, we just don't talk about it, we, it's a sin. Um, but the more we go through the Bible, and even when we were talking with Ryder and Alexa this morning, um, you know, there are a lot of men of God that ask God questions. Uh, they want to know, uh, they want more understanding, and God gives us all the answers that we, uh, that we can really honestly want for. Don't, don't get me wrong, there are mysteries that God keeps for himself, but uh, with issues that concern things in our lives, uh, Kyle's been doing this really great series on issues that confront uh, Christians today and throughout all of life, and the one that, uh, when I brought this up, I thought it was a brand new idea, and as Charles had led uh, lessons on Ecclesiastes not too long ago, and there's nothing new under the sun, and uh, so of course, Kyle, he gave me some really good um, information for it, which was great because... Like I said, I had never heard anything about it. So this afternoon, I'm going to bring up this idea and this uh, issue with euthanasia and suicide. Before I get started with that, though, I want to share with you a story that I heard very recently. Uh, there was a young man who struggled with depression, and he, uh, he had made up his mind that he was not going to go to school that day, and he was going to go jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. This was back in the 1990s, I believe. Uh, this young man prayed about it, and he told his mom, I'm going to class. And his mom, you know, being the good mom she is, you know, she said, all right, son, good luck, uh, have a good day, I love you. Well, she would probably be concerned about him if he would have said something else. But, you know, he probably didn't give her any idea of what his plan was. So then he got on a bus, and instead of heading to school, he headed towards the Golden Gate Bridge. And he was kind of negotiating with himself. If somebody stops me, I know that I still have a purpose here. I still know that... God needs me, and I have something to do. Well, nobody stopped him. And uh, it was even, he's actually a, a big public speaker, and he, he said that people would saw, saw him crying, but nobody thought to be the one to say, hey, are you okay? What's going on? Can I help you? Because it's not too op often that you just see people crying for no reason by themselves, and if so, they may be in a place where you could help them out. So it doesn't happen. He gets to the place where you can start walking across the Golden Gate Bridge, never been there, but I assume it's something like the bridge Natalie and I walked across, but you can't jump off that. So he starts walking, and finally this girl is coming his way, and she has every intention to know. She notices him, and he's like, okay, somebody's going to stop me. He's still crying at this point. She stops him indeed and asks him to take her picture on the bridge and then goes on her way. And he's still even more devastated. At this point, he's listened to the devil's lies and has convinced himself that he is of no worth. Nobody is willing to stop him. Nobody cares enough to ask him why he has tears running down his face. So then he jumps off the bridge. And immediately, he says, immediately, as soon as he jumped, he regretted it. He said, I, I, that was not what I should have done. And how often have we had sin in our lives, something that we were pressured to do so much, so much, we finally give in to that sin, and then you immediately regret doing it. All those lies, you can see right through it. I imagine Adam and Eve, as soon as they took a bite of that fruit and they realized what they had done, they said, man, I've sinned. I really wished I had not have done that. 
But as it would happen, and uh, any turn of events, if I can say this, this young man survived that jump. Now, they say at about 100 feet, hitting water is like hitting concrete. But he managed in the air to turn himself around in a certain way to where his feet would strike. And he lived through that. And he goes on talking about suicide awareness and uh, how to reach out to people. So that's the story I wanted to start us off with. But now, let's get into a little more uh, the information on it. Uh, suicide, I'm going to use these terms kind of interchangeably. But there's also this issue of euthanasia. And it comes from a Greek word, you, I, I assume that's how it is, and thanatos, which is death, so good death. It comes from the 18th century, writers in England, they, uh, they meant that euthanasia was just a good death. It wasn't anything you took on yourself. It would be like the, I think the dream most of us have where we just die in our sleep. That is a good death. Uh, you die around uh, people, people that care about you and you care about them. In today's terms, though, it's, it's not understood this way. Uh, they use physician-assisted suicide. Uh, they call it death with dignity, and they call it mercy killing. I also want to know that this is a, a very sensitive subject. I'm sure everyone here has been touched by this issue. Um, so if you feel in any need, you need to take um, maybe a step out because uh, it brings up bad memories. Do that. But also, let's talk about it afterwards and encourage one another. So it's not to be confused with refusing artificial life support. Now, I really don't have the time to get into all that, um, but you know there is a natural death process. And if somebody does not want to be on these artificial life-saving machines, then that is not the same as killing yourself. It's actually legal in some countries. It's legal in Belgium, Luxembourg. The Netherlands just uh, authorized, I think it was 14-year-olds that are feel like they're under such severe depression that they are allowed to um, have youth be euthanized. Uh, and also in Thailand, and even in, here in our own country, in the states of Oregon and Washington. So why does it concern us Christians? We have these arguments for, uh, I'm going to talk about them, uh, and I just ask for you to just <coughs> not think anything of it for the time being, because these are what people say. They say it's choice. Proponents emphasize that choice is the fundamental principle for liberal democracies and free market systems. I should be able to do what I want. It's my life. Let me live it. If I don't want to live no more, I have that right. If we are absolutely not using the Bible to make any of our decisions, I can't argue against that. But we will argue against that with the Bible. They also talk about quality of life. The pain and suffering a person feels during a disease, even with pain relievers, cannot be comprehended by somebody that doesn't go through that uh, disease process. I can understand that to a point. So let's, uh, and then another part is, um, even considering the physical pain, it's often difficult for patients to overcome the emotional pain uh, of losing their independence. I had heard of a story when I started um, my nursing school, and it was of a lady that uh, found out she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and she went home and made her husband uh, his favorite meal, and then uh, wrote a note saying, sorry for the mess, and she shot herself in the bathroom. Do you really think that's what that husband wanted to be left with? Uh, my, mine and Leah's grandfather also had Alzheimer's. And here's a different approach. My grandma was able to take care of him for those 10 years that he had it. And don't get me wrong, it was hard. It was very difficult, as you all know. Uh, but she was able to do that. Uh, it wasn't really in, it's not in our hands to decide when uh, we live or die. <coughs> 
So let's talk about these arguments against. There's a professional argument against. As you know, Natalie and I are in the healthcare field, and uh, critics argue that it could unduly compromise the role of healthcare workers. Our whole purpose is to provide people with health to improve them as much as we can. Uh, we have these hospice units, though, that help people ease into death. Um, those aren't in any ways administering uh, death, though. So now, instead of being ministers of health and life, we will be ministers of death. They would violate the Hippocratic Oath, which doesn't really hold much today anyways, but it says, I will not give a lethal drug to anyone if I'm asked, nor will I advise such a plan. And then there's also this moral and theological debate. Uh, euthanasia is viewed as murder, and voluntary euthanasia is viewed as suicide. A violation of the sanctity of human life, and human life, who does it ultimately belong to? God. And humans should not be the ones to make the choices to end their life. So as Christians, though, uh, we've had some arguments for, we've had some argues against. In everything that we do in our lives, though, our argument should be based solely, principally, upon what God says, what we find in the Bible. So now I'm going to ask you, we're going to be turning to some scriptures soon, uh, but what does the Bible say? We have some general observations uh, that the Bible does not specifically forbid, as in it doesn't say euthanasia or suicide. You cannot do that. But it does refer to several instances of suicide, which we will get into. It also reveals several principles which may apply to this issue. And so uh, I have Hebrews 5.14. It says that um, we must let the Bible aid us to discern both good and evil. And some other specific observations that we find is that life comes from God, and to take it is ultimately murder. As such, he has the sole right to dispose of it, and that's Acts 17, 25, and 28. Human life is sacred because why? Well, we've been teaching from Genesis uh, in the children's class, and uh, one of the first things that we talk about is God made man in his own image. We are sacred beings. You know, God gives us the authority to um, uh, eat animals, uh, uh, to partake of trees and uh, fruits that they provide. So uh, in that sense, we're... Well, that is fine, but the life of a human is sacred because we are made in God's image. Uh, suicide in general, though, is an act of murder. And according to Exodus uh, 20.13, it says, you shall not murder. And then our bodies, they belong to God, not us. It says, this is especially true of Christians in 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. We no longer live for ourselves, but we live for God. And that's in Romans 14, 7-8. And we might prefer death, but you know what? God always has a different plan for us. And that's in Philippians 1, 21 through 24. So now we've mentioned, uh, kind of built a little foundation for ourselves. Let's talk about examples. Uh, I have this titled Men of Men. It's actually, uh, these are men that committed suicide, and they were sinful men. In every case that we find of an act of suicide being done is by a sinful man. So let's turn into Judges 9. Judges 9, verses 5 through 6. This is our first uh, man that we'll talk about, and this is Abimelech. <clears throat> In chapter 9, verses 5 through 6, it says, And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the son of Jerubbabel, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went, and they made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar of Shinnah. I must have had that written down wrong. 
but Abimelech, we do find he uh, falls down on his own sword. <coughs> Let me see if I can find that. Yeah, in verse 54 of chapter uh, 9, it says, uh, He called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say to me, A woman killed him. And this is after uh, a woman had thrown a large stone from a tower and hit him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. You know, we mentioned earlier in the ver early verses what, what Abimelech did. He murdered uh, a lot of people. He was a self-proclaimed judge of Israel. Does this sound like a godly man? Does it sound like that's what a godly man would do? And it's not. If you want to turn over to 1 Samuel now, I'm going to read about Saul. 1 Samuel 31. 1 Samuel 31, 3 through 4. It says, The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised <coughs> excuse me, come and thrust me through. And mistreat me, but his armor bearer would not do it, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. Now here Saul is committed suicide. He was asking another man to take his life from him. And then what did this armor bearer do? It says, When his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. You see the hopelessness that Saul had at the very end, instead of seeing it through to God's full plan, he ended his own life. And then in the fear that he caused upon his own armor bearer, caused him to end his life as well. We have the story of Azithropel in 2 Samuel 17, verse 23. 2 Samuel 17, verse 23. It said, When Azithropel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order, and he hanged himself, and he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. What, a, what is the reason? So his, his act of suicide was his solution. But what was the problem? It says that his counsel wasn't let's listened to. So he went home, put everything in order, and then went and hung himself. Do you think he left his house in order after he had hung himself? Absolutely not. In Zimri, in 1 Kings 16, 1 Kings 16, verses 18 through 19, <clears throat> It says, when Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house over him with fire and died because of his sins that he committed doing evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam for his sin which he committed, making Israel to sin. Zimri, you know, we have a little bit different kind of view. Uh, we've had people fall on their swords. We've had somebody hang themselves. Uh, Zimri here has burned himself. Not only that, he took everything that he could possibly withhold from others. See how these are all kind of mounting up to a very selfish way, very selfish ideation. And then we have Judas. Um, turn over to Matthew chapter 27. And this is one that we talk about, um, we've heard about a lot. And we're going to go back to this, but just real quick, we'll read about Judas. Judas was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was one of the people that was closest to him. He got to walk with him. He got to sit at his feet. He got to see all these miracles. He was himself was granted uh, special abilities. But here he has Judas. Well, actually, start in verse 3. Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned. He changed his mind, 
brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, Judas departed, and Judas went and hanged himself. Now, let's put your marker in your Bibles there, because we're going to come back to Judas. So here I've given you five examples of men of men that just did what they wanted to do. They took it upon themselves to end their own life. But what about men of God? What do men of God do? Job. Uh, I, I want to say it's fairly common that Job is a man even used in non-Christian kind of talk about somebody that suffered a great deal, yet he suffered not. He did not suffer for sin, and he longed for death. But where do we find Job taking his life? My mom would always kind of use that tactic of guilt-tripping me and saying, well, you have as bad as Job. Have you lost all your kids in one day and your family and animals, livestock, everything just completely devastated? I'm like, no, Mom, I, I still have everything that I have. She's like, well, yeah, I guess you don't have it that bad, do you? So in a sense, you know, Job is a testament to me that Job suffered so much and he did not sin. He kept uh, his faith. Um, and even if we were to go in the beginning of Job, the whole purpose of Job was Satan coming by, and God says, have you not seen my servant Job? Look at him. And Satan said, I could get him to curse you. And he never could. And then in the end, when Job is completely miserable, everything's gone, God gives him a huge lecture. What does God do for him? He makes him even better than he was before. Job was a broken man that God fixed and repaired better than Job could have even possibly imagined. The author of Lamentation tells us who suffered with those and who had sinned. Uh, that kind of ties into Jeremiah. Jeremiah, he had fled to Babylon. Now, could you imagine having uh, somebody come to the United States and want to take everybody captive, and they had the power to do it? Would you imagine there'd be people taking their own lives rather than live in captivity? Probably. But Jeremiah, you know, he kept faith with his fellow brothers. He kept faith with his God that he would preserve them. And then we have Elijah. And this is the, the big example I want to use is Elijah. Let's go to 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19. <clears throat> Elijah, the last man of God, or so he thought. Kings 19, 1 through 4, it says, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. He rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. So Elijah, here we have this man of God. Uh, he had just done this uh, great act with the Baals and how the prophets were slain. And uh, he has one Jezebel threaten him. Now she's, she's got a pretty bad rap. And if she tells you she's going to kill you, you know, to Elijah, she probably could. So he gave up hope. He, he saw himself as the only faithful follower of God left in the world and that ultimately he was a failure. 
So Elijah, after his best effort, he could not turn Israel from idolatry, so he wished for death. Notice that. He wished for it. But did he actually take his own life? What did he say? He said, God, take my life. So Elijah already knows that even in his despair that the decision to end his life was in God's hands still. So God countered Elijah's lack of hope and he gave, uh, by giving him important chores to do uh, that would affect the future of Israel. Uh, he also pointed out that Elijah's view was wrong. There were 7,000 faithful in Israel. So was, was Elijah a good judge of character of whether his life was worth continuing? Absolutely not. He didn't have it right. And now I ask you, let's turn back over to Matthew. Um, once again, I'm going to read this about Judas. It said, Judas, his betrayer, after he saw Jesus was condemned. So let's, let's kind of tie that back into the story I mentioned at the beginning. Judas sinned. He, uh, he was always looking after making a, a quick buck. I think we all are, are aware of Judas doing that. Um, whether it be legal or illegal. Uh, this plan, of course, was I'll give Jesus to you for, for some money. Um, I never really thought about it this way, but as I was studying, I, I thought about Judas, and I wonder if Judas really wanted Jesus dead. His, his actions here in verse 3 kind of tell us, you know, he felt really bad about what had happened. Up until that point, had the Pharisees and the lawyers and scribes, had they tried to capture Jesus before? Many times. And what happened every time? Jesus got away. Uh, I'm not saying this is exactly what Judas was thinking, but maybe Judas thought this time Jesus would get away too. And at the same time, Judas would make some quick money. But did Jesus get away this time? Jesus not only was captured, gave himself to them, but Jesus was brutally, brutally murdered. And I really feel like that hung on Judas a lot. You know, he says, I, I've, I've made such a grave mistake. Uh, here's your money back. They didn't want the money back, so he just throws it at him. And in, in his complete overwhelming sense of dread, fear, he ends his own life. He goes and hangs himself. It says that, uh, in verse 7, they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. And it was fulfilled what had been spoken of the prophet Jeremiah, saying, They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him whom a price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed. And of course, we have the example of Jesus. He suffered for all who sinned. And Jesus, uh, in 1 Peter 3.18, and in Hebrews 12.2, Jesus endured the cross. So early Christians, they saw a value in suffering. They say for the character and hope it produced in Romans 5, 3 through 4, it was for the maturity and the patience it produced in James 1, 2 through 4, for the opportunity to honor and glorify Christ in 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7, and Philippians 1.20. And Paul was willing to endure suffering for the benefit of others. He said he preferred death, but he considered the needs of others in Philippians 1, 21 through 24. And Paul also endured suffering to demonstrate uh, the power of Christ in him in 2 Corinthians 1, 6 through 11. So how, how we may die actually might be our last opportunity to magnify God and to help and encourage others. That's kind of a weird spin on it. You know, you don't really think about dying as a, a, an opportunity of showing the glory of God, but in all reality, it could. 
So in conclusion, we have uh, this voluntary euthanasia or suicide, even one in suffering, can be viewed as an act of ingratitude towards God who gives us life and he gives us suffering for our good. A violation of our duty to God uh, all the days of our lives. God has given us a certain amount of time and if God has given us that time, it is up to us to fulfill it as much as we can. There's a misguided effort to escape an aspect of life that God intends for us to experience. So many times people want an easy way out. And I'll be honest with you, if you end your own life, yeah, you, you made it out. It may seem easy, but now you'll have an entire eternity to think about it. And then a selfish act that hurts those closest to us. And I think a bit, the biggest thing, that it deprives them of our example and our influence. So how can we hasten our death just to avoid suffering? It's when we do not know what the future holds. There might be a cure. There might be a remission. And honestly, there might be an answer to a prayer. You could see these people suffering. One thing that my mom did also to guilt trip me when I complained of a stomach ache or a belly ache or headache, she would get out our uh, directory and she would start flipping through and she'd point to these, uh, usually they were the older women because I think women are tougher than men, but so this lady right here has cancer, Eric, and she's had it for six years and she comes every time. This person here has had chronic neck pain or whatever, back pain. This person was in an awful car accident. You know, and they come, Eric. They come and they encourage others. They set the example every time. And my bellyache and my headache didn't seem too bad at that time anymore. That still sticks with me today. So I'd like to leave you with this, that uh, not saying we cannot try to alleviate suffering from, through painkillers is short of taking a life, but our lives belong to God, and we must trust Him and His promises. And then a couple of scriptures is, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And one more from 2 Corinthians. is Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and comfort of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abounds in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Kyle did a lesson several weeks ago, and was talking about joy. And where joy really comes from is in our hearts. And that joy has to come through God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Here in a moment, we're going to sing the invitation song. And this song is offered for anyone that has any need in this congregation. Kyle does such a good job at um, getting his invitations to roll. I'm, I'm still working on that. But uh, at the very core of this invitation is if anybody has a need, anyone, won't you come forward now as we stand and as we sing?